I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. And this week I'm talking to Neve Gallagher, who teaches history at Cambridge. Her book, Ireland and the Great War, was published in 2019, and she has a piece in the current issue of the paper on the partition of Ireland. It's a review of a book by Charles Townsend called The Partition, Ireland Divided, 1885 to 1925. Hello Neve, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi Tom, pleasure. Thanks for asking me on the show. As you write in your piece, the Irish border is once again a subject of general concern because of Brexit, and we'll get to that a bit later in the discussion. But let's talk first about how the border came to be there in the first place, because I'd always ignorantly imagined or assumed that it was is an artefact of Irish independence. But actually, the border was created first. Is that right? The partition of Ireland came before the Irish Free State. Correct. And, and don't worry, it's, it's not your ignorance, Tom. It's a common mistake many people make. So the border was created in Ireland in December 1920 as part of the Government of Ireland Act, And that was passed by David Lloyd George, who, of course, was Liberal Prime Minister at the aftermath of the the First World War. He'd been Prime Minister since December 1916 in a largely Unionist-dominated cabinet. So it was passed in December 1920, and it came into being, I suppose, when, well, one can choose many different dates as to when it actually came into being. One could talk about the elections held in May 1921, where a majority of Ulster Unionist MPs voted in favour of partition of the measure, which would create a parliament in Northern Ireland and also a parliament in what was going to be called Southern Ireland. So this was a very clear vote from Ulster Unionists that said, yes, you know, we want to have a new Northern Ireland entity, a new region in Northern Ireland. Now, it was met with a very different response south of, let's say, the figurative border, where only four Unionist MPs turned up to the opening of the new Southern Irish Parliament, and it was effectively boycotted and ignored by most nationalists and Republicans within the South. Because in this current time in 1920, both Ireland and Britain were engaged in what Irish nationalists call the War of Independence, and what some historians still call the Anglo-Irish War, because Ireland was still technically within the UK at this point of time. So one could say May 1921 is when the border is officially ratified by Ulster Unionists. This is when it comes into being. However, the date that you mentioned, so December 1921, when the Anglo-Irish Treaty is signed between Britain and Ireland, that gives the 26 counties of Ireland a measure of independence, which becomes the free state. In that particular agreement, there is a clause that says it will look at the border again and maybe revise what had currently been agreed. So in, in 1924, the Boundary Commission came to conduct a range of different interviews of people along the border to try and designate where exactly the so-called frontier should lie. And because its remit was so poorly defined, there was no sort of regulations put down as to what it would, what it would do, no methodology in how it would conduct those particular interviews. That effectively meant that different groups of people with competing interests had vastly different ideas about where the border might end up. Some thought there would be huge restorations of territory from what is currently in Northern Ireland through to the south, particularly the very contentious counties of Fermanagh and Tyrone, which had largely nationalist populations, but which had been designated to be in the new Northern Irish Parliament, which would be largely Protestant Unionist controlled. But when the report was actually published, there were going to be relatively minor transfers of territory and people in comparison to what nationalists had anticipated. So the report was squashed, basically, and that effectively meant that what had been agreed in the 1920 Act came to stand. But you ask me, you know, when is the Irish border? And you will get very different answers for that. 
Either it was December 1920, it was May 1921, or you can fast forward through to 1925 when this report was killed. So when they were talking about moving it, presumably, well, I may be wrong about this, but the boundaries of the counties were sort of fixed. So would they have, were, were they suggesting dividing some of the counties in two, splitting some of the counties between the north and the south? Or was it a question of moving whole counties one way or other across the border? Well, I mean, herein lies, lies the genius of the Boundary Commission. Nobody knew what they could possibly decide. I think some people expected some counties to be chopped up a bit, so that particular towns and villages that had maybe a largely Protestant community might stay within the north, whereas the others would be given to the south. But from the point of view of nationalists and also Republicans, they hoped for counties to be changed. They hoped that both Fermanagh and Tyrone would go to the south. They also expected large parts of Armagh, particularly the whole region of South Armagh, which is effectively entirely nationalist, and which, of course, has remained in Northern Ireland and is very well known, I'm sure, to many of your listeners. South Armagh was a very big area in the Troubles, which had a lot of Republican activity. So a bit of both, really, Tom. Both counties, but also chopping and sort of narrowing things to kind of fit these ideas of homogenous groups of people. And it does still sort of cut across. The, I mean, there are farmers who have land on both sides of the border, aren't there? I mean, it's always been a porous. It's not, it doesn't follow a river or a mountain range. or the, the It's not... Yeah, completely. As it were, a geographical border in that sense. It's a very artificial sort of border. How different were the six counties from the rest of Ireland before partition? Well, really, I mean, most of this is a question about Belfast. Really, the reason a lot of partition happened in the manner in which it did, and that the six counties came to be the formulation that was Northern Ireland, it was really Belfast and sort of surrounding hinterlands that were the big areas under contention. Belfast in particular was, was very different. It was largely industrial. It was more like Glasgow than it was like... Dublin or Cork, though they were Dublin and Cork are both fairly urban cities as well. It was a sort of powerhouse across the island and within the UK for, for shipbuilding, for engineering, for manufacturing. And part of the argument that many Ulster Unionists had in favour of Home Rule was because of Belfast's difference from the rest of Ireland, which was largely rural, agrarian, and Therefore, it would kill industry within Ulster, within Belfast, if all of Ireland were to be given home rule, because really Belfast would be the one holding up the whole entity. You know, you could say that was arguably true for 1920. Totally different picture within a handful of years in the aftermath of the First World War, when industry collapsed all across the UK. All of those sorts of staples of economy and industry that had held up that unionist economic argument against home rule were effectively destroyed and there was no replacement and there never has been a replacement. So engineering, shipbuilding, all these things died in Belfast and while they were briefly revived in the Second World War, they were killed back in the first few years after the, the First World War and nobody could have predicted that. Right Again, this importance of sort of contingency and context to this story. Nobody could have predicted the whole changing scenario of Belfast's economic importance within the United Kingdom. But really, those other counties, not particularly different at all. They were also largely rural. And while there are pockets of industry in places like Armagh, again, most of these counties are particularly rural. And they're also made up of farmers. So they're not, not very different at all. Belfast was only the sort of uh, anomaly that stood out. And that during the Troubles, and possibly still the idea that Belfast being divided between, between East and West, between Catholic and Protestant areas, was there that sectarian division in, say, 1900 in Belfast? So, yes, but I want to qualify this a little bit because this is um, sort of part of the teleologies that are regularly rolled out by, by people who are talking about Irish history. And I don't mean commentators, don't worry, Tom, this is a sort of... <laughs> uh, a, a very of, happy to be educated. <laughs> general point, more about historians in general. Yes, look, Belfast definitely had, you would call it sectarian tensions insofar as there were groups who were Protestant and those who were Catholic. Religion's really important at the start of the 20th century who seemed to divide themselves into enclaves. And this was partly done through agency, but partly done through how politicians manipulated 
different groups, and particularly how unionists, uh, unionist middle class politicians, who effectively make up the entire Ulster Unionist Council, how they manipulate voters. Well, they've been manipulating voters for a while, but particularly this becomes important after the 1918 representation of the People Act that enfranchises all men over the age of 21. So in terms of enclaves, yes, without a doubt, uh, as Charles Chinesend shows in his book over many different pages, there have been riots between Protestants and Catholics for a very long time, and you can find those. But I would imagine you would find riots between Protestants and Catholics in many different countries experiencing the religious wars of the 1600s, for example, and even many different debates that have straddled religious divides right up into the 20th century. So yes, it happened. Was it entirely unusual? No. But there were certainly divisions of people into where they lived. And this was for a variety of different reasons. I mean, educational control within Ireland, all of Ireland, was, was heavily influenced by the church, as it was in many different countries, such as in Prussia in the 1830s, for example, in Britain right through until the end of the 19th century. Clerical controlled education was a major phenomenon of that time. And that effectively meant that children of different religious backgrounds would go to different schools, different residential patterns developed in the aftermath of partition. <laughs> How should I describe this? When a, a series of sectarian attacks, effectively by Protestant workers on Catholics, caused the expulsions of maybe 10,000 workers from Catholic workers from shipyards in Belfast. So you see this sort of partition has this kind of really sectarian impact insofar as it further kind of consolidates divisions that we still talk about today and that historians customarily use when they're talking about the past. So short answer is yes. They, they have been there for some time. But you start once you start drawing lines on the earth and then you say you're on this side and you're on that side, you entrench or even create divisions that may not have existed quite so starkly before. Well, exactly. And let's take another example. The sort of sectarian thesis is so well embedded in Irish historiography. But one could take a look at Labour, for example, and the possibilities that were generated by that movement in the early 1900s. And Jim Larkin, who himself was an Irish-born Dock worker, dock labourer in Liverpool, again, which reminds us of the extensive emigration from Ireland. Uh, there are Irish populations in lots of different countries, including Britain. So Jim Larkin was very successful in organising workers, Protestant and Catholic, to rail against the employers in the strikes and trade union movements of the early 1900s. So 1900 right through until just before the Great War in 1914. And was relatively successful, right? These were groups of people who were now organising against the employers. And, and that fact is basically forgotten and dropped from, from the historiography because it seemed to be relatively insignificant. One could take the First World War as an example, which I've worked on. And the astonishing thing in the First World War is the extent of cross-community, cross-confessional cooperation in aid of the war effort. And this happens amongst a variety of different let's say, classes, so those who are more affluent and have influence within society, broadly termed the middle classes. One can find many different examples all across Ulster, even though Ulster itself and Ulster Unionists tried to organise and did very successfully organise their own war movement, war momentum, patriotic societies, voluntary associations, etc., under, again, the auspices of the Ulster Unionist Council and its auxiliary branch, the Ulster Women's Unionist Council, of course, ensuring that gender divide was, was apparent. So, again, cross-confessional cooperation is a story. in, And really, it is a story. It's a history, several different histories within um, the history of what's today Northern Ireland, but yet virtually squeezed out by this preoccupation with homogenous groups and sectarian identities that straddles so much of how Irish history has been written. And as you mentioned in your piece, the 1798 rebellion that was Presbyterians and Catholics together against the landowning ruling Anglican class. Of course. I mean, this was tremendous. This was a an alliance between Presbyterians and Catholics against the established church, who are Anglicans. So showing on the one hand divisions within Protestantism because Presbyterians and other nonconformist groups who themselves were, uh, you would call them Protestant dissenters, they were not part of the established church, which was Anglican. And they had a number of different penalties and I suppose one would say discrimination against them that was established in society, established right back from the penal laws um, enacted under Oliver Cromwell. And this partially explains the significant emigration from Ulster of Presbyterians and nonconformists to North America 
throughout the 1700s and even into the, the 19th century as well. And they played an incredibly important role in establishing evangelicalism, so very Christian forms of religious expression, all across North America. Um, that endures right to this day, of course. We have to mention Trump, and that comes to mind. So this was not just a story of Catholic versus Protestant. In this particular rebellion of 1798, you have a very strong alliance between Catholics and particularly Presbyterians, because they're the majority nonconformist group, against the Anglican classes, and they are assist assisted by the French. And basically, this is a full-out blown um, rebellion against British rule and a desire for a republic. I mean, that's, of course, the central premise behind the creation of the Union in 1801, because uh, whenever the French land in Ireland, of course, this is a major foreign policy concern for um, Britain at the time. And one of the reasons why the Union, which comes into operation on the 1st of January 1801, that's the 1801 Act of Union that creates that entity called the United Kingdom, so often forgotten about today in, in Britain, when people forget about Ireland, that it was even indeed a part of the Union at one point. These were the reasons behind the Union of 1801, entirely, again, dependent on context and on the particular circumstances that led up to enactment. So before the Act of Union in 1801, what were the constitutional arrangements, as it were. If the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland didn't exist before 1801, just very r roughly, what were there? Generally, I mean, Ireland itself had been declared a kingdom under Henry VIII, and this has sort of been the initial impetus for the plantations of Ireland, which brought maybe well over 100,000 settlers from England and Scotland to particularly Ulster, right? And I think this is what Townsend's trying to get at in his book. And these are people who consider themselves very much English, right? You would, you would say British later on. And they are very much Protestant because this is an era when religion is incredibly important. As you well know, Henry VIII is changing his relationship to the Catholic Church <laughs> quite significantly. And that would have very severe consequences right through until really it's changing and until today. So this is all part of how Ireland became under the sphere, we should say, of English and then later on British influence. So Ireland was a kingdom and it was part of the, the conquests of the, the 1500s into the 1600s, particularly under, under Cromwell, which really made it a, a sort of, well, effectively a colony. There's a colony of England in that, in that period. And right up until the, the end of the 1700s, I mean, Ireland was still a kingdom. A parliament for Ireland was created, and most recently a parliament for Ireland had been created by Henry Grattan. And this is sort of a very figurative parliament in the imagination of Irish nationalists who looked back at this parliament as a, an example of when the Irish themselves governed Ireland independently. Now, they weren't quite able to govern it independently because it was absolutely the, the periphery of that metropole, which is right next door. However, still, Ireland seemed to, in that parliament, in the eyes of Irish nationalists who looked back at this period as, as a kind of way to project forward into the future about what they wanted, Grattan's parliament was an incredibly important figurative moment in which the Irish could govern themselves. But, um, was there some sense in which people tried to say when the union was formed that it was making Ireland more equal with Britain? That it was, there were presumably different ways to tell that story. It was becoming part of the union and more equal and less of a colony, or it was losing its independence because it had had a parliament, which it... Yeah, I think uh, even both of those ways are, are flawed in different ways. I mean, so firstly, there's there's when the union is created, that does not mean that there is a concomitant sense of unionism. Absolutely not. That is only a phenomenon that arises towards the end of the 19th century, and it's an explicit reaction to the home rule crisis of that period. So the creation of the union doesn't automatically mean that people are now unionists, or that people in... England and Scotland and Wales now see Ireland as part of their kin. There is no switch that happens. Ireland is still effectively a, bit a vassal state until some of those discriminatory laws that were there and the penal laws, for example, start to be removed from Ireland. So with Catholic emancipation, for example, in 1829, that removes a lot of the civil and religious disabilities that have been imposed upon Catholics in earlier eras. That's a very key one. But really, this kind of idea of Ireland being brought into the Union it's only really a project that happens later on in the 19th century. I mean, before then, you know, it's very hard to find an array of fantastic constructive policies by the British government. We're trying to undo the damage, shall we say, done in earlier decades. 
so as you argue in the piece then that the sort of rise of unionism as a political force and as an ideology in the late 19th century was a reaction to what they perceived as the threat of home rule that it was only when, when they thought that Ireland might be slipping away from the union that then this unionism became a... Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, unionism became a phenomenon when, you know, this is after the it's after the Great Famine, 1845 through to 52. You start to get the land wars within Ireland, which is really popular radicalism agitating for change and how land was owned and divided within Ireland because it was effectively owned by the aristocracy, the landed classes, most of whom were indeed Anglican. Again, a legacy of that earlier era. But this agitation is what sort of prompts the government in Westminster to start looking more closely at Ireland. And it's on the back of this agitation that home rule starts to become a sort of more popular movement, led, first of all, by Isaac Butt, who is not really a sort of popular leader. And we quickly jump over him to get to the main guy, who is Charles Stuart Parnell. And really under Parnell, this is when Home Rule becomes a significant political unpopular project right across the country. It becomes much more important after the Reform Acts of 1867, particularly 1884, that enfranchise a lot of effectively farmers, working, working men who own some property of a, a certain amount, meaning that there's now a fairly strong electorate behind the Home Rule Party, the Irish Nationalist Party that had not existed in previous eras. And home rule was seen as a variety of different things. It was seen by Parnell and many others as a way to undo some of the injustices that were still within Ireland after the Union. It was seen as a way of better reconciling that landowning class, of which Parnell was a part of. I mean, this is the, the irony is that he himself, of course, is an Anglican and a landowner. So it seemed to kind of restore relations between landowners within Ireland and the Irish peasantry at the same time and the farming classes. And it's also seen to be, uh, I suppose, a better way of governing Ireland through a parliament within Dublin itself. And under Parnell and, and later on under John Redmond, the desire for that parliament was a, a sort of a measure, a limited measure of self-government. Now, of course, they probably would have taken whatever they were offered, they only offered a very small amount. But still, this was some way of local control and authority within the UK. I mean, at the moment, it seems like a strange thing to get. Why would anyone get so angry about? I mean, it's so entirely different to devolution in, in Scotland, for example, or what we even have in Stormont today. But this is an incredibly radical solution at the time. And there were lots of different reasons that prompted this oppositional movement, which, of course, becomes unionism. And many of the protests against self-government in Ireland, I mean, we talked about the economy, but also there were strong religious concerns. I mean, the Catholic Church was, of course, an incredibly powerful entity, not least in just its ecclesiastical reach, but also in how it effectively had a huge amount of power over the everyday person. This is tremendous encroachment into ideas about morality, ideas about relations between people, about regulating community life. A lot of Protestants were fearful of these ideas. Now, it might be useful just to tie up from the, the rebellion of 1798 right through until the end of that century. We start to see nonconformists and Anglicans becoming more allied in that period and coalescing around support for the Union, because as disabilities were removed within Parliament, effectively Presbyterians could do as well as Anglicans, even though Anglicans tend to be from a different class. So this sort of divide of Protestant Catholic becomes a little more apparent over the 19th century. And the idea that home rule could lead to a Catholic Ireland, that it could lead to the destruction of economy within, um, within particularly Belfast, and that effectively, I mean, there are lots of other elements of this that are not really mentioned, such as race. I mean, the Irish, Irish Catholic peasant was seen to be a different quality of person to that Protestant middle class businessman. And racial expressions are commonly used. And many unionists within Belfast, um, particularly from this sort of middle class background, we commonly talk about a sort of inferior people. So these are all parts of the reasons why many Protestants all across the island, but particularly later on within Ulster, opposed home rule. And they did so in the name of unionism. And this is how the project specifically arises, because they talk about unionism in relation to that 1801 union, though it comes to mean something much different later on. And the Conservative Party sees an opportunity in this. And that's why they renamed themselves the Conservative and Unionist Party, which they hadn't been beforehand. 
um, to demonstrate their alliance with those who oppose home rule. So it's a very long-winded answer to basically say unionism is an explicit political project that arises at the end of the 19th century, very much in response to the agitation that had been put behind the home rule movement and lots of the ways that unionists feared what a home rule parliament might do to them. And it was a way of sort of showing unity with that entity in Britain that was supported by the Conservatives as well. Telling now to the current political situation in Northern Ireland. So we should let listeners know that we're recording on Friday the 18th of June. So it's only the day after Edwin Poots has just resigned as leader of the Democratic Unionist Party after 21 days in office. And the crisis in the DUP is in part part of the fallout from Brexit, though clearly it is tied to this longer history of unionism that you've, you've just been talking about. From start to finish, not that it's anywhere near finished, even from the moment the referendum was mooted, Brexit seems to have shown how little awareness the English political class and English voters have of the situation in Northern Ireland. The question of the of the Good Friday Agreement and of the material disappearance of the border in Northern Ireland should have meant that the Brexit referendum shouldn't even have been called. But it's obviously far too late for that. So, I mean, the border. So the border has had a very long history. I mean, effectively... 1920 has shaped, and that's the Government of Ireland Act in 1920 that created, effectively created the border, and then we discussed when exactly it became real, but let's say 1920. That has effectively shaped Irish politics in a way north and south ever since. I mean, in the south, there was a civil war over the terms of the treaty, and the border is a part of that. The idea that six countries would stay within the UK and that Ireland would be partitioned. It just hadn't been a serious concept that nationalists and then later on Republicans had considered at the time. And that civil war in Ireland left really bitter legacies, even though maybe only, I think, 1300 or maybe up to 1600 people were killed within that conflict. Really, the death toll itself didn't really matter because the legacies this left on communities and on political life ever since has really changed and dominated Irish politics ever since. So the two main political parties that emerge out of that split, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, I mean, they are legacies of that civil war divide. And they are the two, right up until 2019, they have been the two main parties within the Republic of Ireland ever since. And, you know, familial legacies, stories, rumours, myths passed on from generation to generation have really shaped a lot of voting patterns within Ireland based on that civil war split. So all of this dates back to 1920. Now in the North, 1920, when the Parliament was opened within Northern Ireland, which effectively we're in the centenary of that in four days' time, the 20, 22nd. Today, in fact, the day this podcast is going out. Oh, so, yeah. right. <laughs> so we can keep a few of these different things in mind. Um, I imagine the BBC and many others will show you know, the large crowds who, who celebrate the opening of Parliament, and as indeed there really were many large crowds. And there's lots of enthusiasm for King George coming over to make that that opening, etc. But at the very same time in Belfast, effectively Belfast is burning. It's in flames. There are horrific sectarian attacks that are happening at that time. I mean, you have a lot of murders are happening in Belfast in this year because of what's happening in Belfast. So this is not, you know, the way that the government would talk about it today. Like Northern Ireland was created. What, what a success it was. No, indeed, when Northern Ireland was created and we have our history hats on, it was created within uh, blood and turmoil. And those legacies have, of course, been carried in the communities who indeed remember remember those attacks and killings. But also, I mean, the new unionist government very quickly started to take away some of the minor bits of legislation that have been put in the Government of Ireland Act that were designed to protect minorities, particularly that large Catholic minority, and indeed anybody else who might decide not to vote for the Unionists. So anybody who might vote for an independent candidate or a Labour candidate, for example, was effectively disenfranchised by these changes to the electoral system of voting. And this all forms the larger structural context of the Troubles, because by denying the vote, in a way, to many both Catholics and indeed those who might vote for Labour or independent candidates, that effectively meant that unionism had a majority, a permanent majority within Northern Ireland. And this is part of the reason why you have the civil rights movement in the later 1960s, when you have a new generation of Catholics who have gone to third level education for the first time, 
because of the welfare state created after, uh, well, in the 1940s, they are protesting against this discrimination that's been embedded in housing and local government in other spheres of, as well. And of course, this civil rights movement is a sort of pretext to what becomes the troubles. So in a way, you know, the, the border in 1920, that single act of legislation that came to stay after 1925, has shaped politics in Ireland, north and south, until the very present day. And the fact that this is not remembered or thought about within Britain is quite striking. But it's also because of a sort of British and really an English forgetting that Ireland was even a part of the Union. The idea that all these problems within Ireland were organic, nothing to do with this island. Hence the Irish question, the Irish famine, etc. Like it was all an Irish phenomenon that had nothing to do with any of the decisions made here. I mean, I suppose one of the other things that's quite striking about the DUP I mean, it was a fringe party until after the Good Friday Agreement. And then because the Good Friday Agreement was signed between the Ulster Unionist Party and the um, SDLP. So how did they, when when was the DUP founded and, and the UUP? When were the, the political parties, which now dominate Northern Ireland, when were they created? So the UUP, the Ulster Unionist Party, was the party that emerged out of the Ulster Unionist Council. And that council had been created in 1905. And this is when you see opposition towards home rule within Ireland, mainly moving northwards. So away from an all-Ireland unionism to an Ulster unionism. And the UUP emerges from that council and becomes the party of the new Northern Irish Parliament in 1921. And effectively, it's, it's one party rule within Northern Ireland right through until the collapse of Stormont in 1972, and really we should say the prorogation of Stormont, when Westminster collapses it and takes it under its control because of what, what we now know to be the Troubles. So that the UUP was the party, the only party of consequence right up until then. But then you have a new party in the horizon that arises specifically from the, the civil rights movement and, of course, is incredibly important in the Troubles and later on, and that's the Democratic Unionist Party. And beforehand, this was a party that, of course, was integrally linked to Ian Paisley. Because, I mean, it was almost, it was a one-man, I mean, it seemed like a one-man show. One-man show, yeah. Very charismatic leader, a preacher, founded his own church, Free Presbyterian Church. And for any of our listeners who don't know who he is, I just do recommend YouTubing him. And I would give you that sort of sense of, like, what a presence this man actually had. And he basically founded his own, um, it was the Protestant Unionist Party, and this is basically the genesis of the DUP. And they're effectively, they're Protestant nationalists. This is where the, the terminology is confusing of unionist and nationalist, etc. They're effectively Protestant nationalists. And the DUP was manifestly against any compromise with Catholics right through the entire Troubles period. And as you say, they voted against the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, even despite a referendum held in Northern Ireland showing more than 70% of people wanted peace. So they voted in favour for the Good Friday Agreement, but yet the DUP said no. And they'd always said no. So they didn't enter the new institutions and in fact only came in in 2007. And there's a lot of speculation as to why they came in then. But when they came in at this point, of course, they were now the largest unionist party. The UUP... One of the sort of the ironies and, and I suppose a sadness for them is that because the UUP voted in favour of the Good Friday Agreement, they therefore lost a lot of voters because there are a number of Protestant voters. When you break that referendum down, didn't vote for the Good Friday Agreement, didn't vote for any, any concessions. And so the UUP lost votes and effectively sort of died on the back of that until the present. The DUP gained them. And the DUP maintained its hardline stance until it came into the new institutions in 2007. Though there was a split over that as well, because people felt that the DUP should not be sitting in governance with Sinn Féin, because Sinn Féin were seen as the enemy. And I mean, that is an extraordinary thing. If you'd said even in 1995 that Sinn Féin and the DUP will be sharing power in Northern Ireland. If I had put a bet on that in 1995, I'd be a very wealthy woman today. <laughs> because no, nobody could have possibly foreseen um, an alliance between these two parties. There seemed to be the extreme of these sort of polarities and nationalism and unionism. So it really was remarkable when Paisley as First Minister and then Martin McGuinness, who was the leader of, of Sinn Féin, well, a leader of Sinn Féin with Gerry Adams, but Martin McGuinness became Deputy First Minister in the new Assembly. And they pretty successfully managed to 
hold up the institutions, not collapse the institutions to kind of get some stuff done until January 2017, when the parliament collapsed, or the assembly collapsed, I should say, under um, the renewable heat incentive scandal, which was a, a sort of a scheme that had oversight by Arlene Foster, the very recent first minister of Northern Ireland and leader of the DUP, an initiative that basically was going to pay people for using renewable heat installations and trying to incentivize them to do this, except the cost of them was less than the amount that was being paid out. So people were making a profit by burning wood chippings in their in their sheds, in their gardens, and you name it, everywhere. They were gaining money from this scandal. And it cost the Exchequer something like £500 million in Northern Ireland alone. But Foster refused to take any culpability for not having oversight of the costs. And Martin McGuinness walked out as a result. So this was the collapse of the Assembly in Northern Ireland in January 2017. And only in January 2020 did it get up and running again because the British and Irish governments managed to agree a new deal. So it's been up for a year and uh, we're now looking again like it might possibly on the 18th of June 2021. Who are we to say it might not get back up and running because of what's just happened? And what just happened is, of course, yesterday, Edmund Poots was forced to resign. Edmund Poots, the new DUP leader who took over after Arling Foster, was purged from her party in a really pretty horrible manner. And after 21 days, he himself has resigned because the new First Minister of Northern Ireland, Paul Given, has not received a lot of support within the, amongst the DUP membership. But they've particularly resigned because the UK government promised to introduce an Irish Language Act, which nationalists have got a commitment from the UK government for that to be introduced. And they've had that commitment since 2006, the St Andrews Day Agreement. But there are lots of reasons which one can really understand why unionists were concerned about languages within Northern Ireland. But the mere fact that Poots has resigned, Paul Given, who doesn't have any support, is still First Minister today. But without a party, without a First Minister, there can be no assembly because there has to be this joint apparatus between the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister. So indeed, it might look like the, the whole deal is going to collapse again because of this Irish Language Act. There's still a bit of a long grass scenario here. It'll be implemented in September or possibly October if the Assembly itself doesn't pass it beforehand. So really, it's a long story. The extent to what you said is about the Irish Language Act. I mean, it is, but it isn't. I mean, it, presumably it's about, I mean, that's the... None of this is about the detail of the language, just as um, none of the, the kind of, we say, problems of the Northern Ireland are really to do with theological differences. I mean, nobody is there debating over words in the Bible or the, the New Testament or the Old Testament. I mean, none of it's really theological. So similarly, none of this is really about the language itself. It's about allegiances. And people always use that word identity. It's not particularly useful, but it's about allegiances. And if Irish is seen to be sort of a, a language of status put on par with English within Northern Ireland, Unionists in their, their rhetoric, particularly the, the DUP, say that it will diminish the Britishness of the province or of, of the region. So terminology is very difficult because the province is really the province of Ulster, which doesn't include three counties which are within the south. So you'll often hear these confused within political rhetoric. So any adoption of Irish will diffuse and diminish the Britishness of Northern Ireland. And of course, this is also a very difficult political time because that same argument has been used in relation to the protocol, which of course has been implemented as a result of Brexit. And therefore, many unionists are worried and concerned that many of the things that define who they are and define that allegiance are being gradually taken away. But this idea, I mean, there's an element of picking and choosing when they have the same laws as Britain and when they have differences. For example, abortion is now only still illegal in Northern Ireland. It's the only part on the, in the archipelago, as we say, where abortion is still illegal. So, Yeah, the DUP are a little bit like the sort of cake and eat it party. They're very selective on what they want to take from the UK. And abortion is a great example. I mean, abortion legislation is brought into England and Wales in 1967, I think. And I think that allows terminations up to something like 24 weeks. But it's not brought in in Northern Ireland because the DUP is the largest party for virtually the whole of the period, has been adamantly against it. And nor is it the only one. I mean, you know, there will be many Catholic Conservatives who are also against it. But Sinn Féin has come to stand for a party in very recent years as a party that kind of adopts these sorts of liberal 
attitudes, and that's liberal attitude to abortion, to gay rights, to partnerships and not marriage, etc. And nor are they the only ones. So the Alliance Party are also the same socio-economic liberal bent as Sinn Féin in that sense. They're very supportive of all of these forms of politics that are no longer new in Britain, but are certainly new for, for Northern Ireland. And abortion policy was devolved to Northern Ireland in 2010. And when the, the new assembly collapsed between 2017 and 2020, it was in that period that MPs unusually supported an amendment in Westminster that would have repercussions in Northern Ireland. And effectively, it meant that if the new assembly hadn't gotten up and running by October 2019, abortion legislation for Northern Ireland would come into effect, which is exactly what happened. So now Northern Ireland could jump straight into the 21st century because of abortion legislation. Now, the DUP have been adamantly against this, right, because it is important to remember that they are a small C Christian, you know, Christian conservative party. Or, or big C, yeah, or even a very big C Christian. Big C, yes, indeed. And, and that Poots famously, was it Poots or Donaldson, or a number of them believes that the God created the world in seven days, 4,000 years ago. Yes, well, certainly Poots is the best example of that. I have seen different reports saying 4,000 years, the world is 4,000 years old or 6,000 years old. It's, it's very recent anyway. It's a very different way of seeing the world. It's denying evolution. It's, you know, having doubts about dinosaurs. I mean, it's just, this is kind of the, the framework in which Poots, who until yesterday had been the DUP leader, and nor is he really the only one, though I don't know the creationist views of the others per se. But I do know that Paul Given, who's currently First Minister today, on 18th of June 2021, you know, in, in February of this year, he proposed a new law to prevent abortions within Northern Ireland. So DUP are constantly pushing against this legislation that the UK brought in, trying to roll it back and using the argument that actually the UK government is not respecting the devolutionary principles or the devolutionary system that have been created within Northern Ireland, even though they themselves, of course, as we know, backed a very hard Brexit solidly, refused every offer that was on the table. So Theresa May's backstop, they would have kept all of the UK within a customs union with the EU, adamantly against that. And then he eventually got the protocol, which some of them had been initially supportive of. But of course, now they're very much against that too. But some of that, the blame for all of that, I mean, clearly lies with in Westminster, or maybe perhaps even most of it does. There's that video of Boris Johnson going to Northern Ireland and saying, absolutely not, there'll be no customs checks between Britain and Northern Ireland. And if anyone asks you to, you come to me personally and I'll tear up that bit of paper and all that stuff. And in that sense, it's, they were being naive to trust Johnson. But the, most of the blame, it seems to me, lies lies in Westminster and lies with lies with Johnson more than with the, the DUP. Because it seemed that with Theresa May, there's that her majority depended on the DUP. So there's a sense in which they could, up to a point, hold her to ransom. But then after Johnson won the election, didn't need the DUP anymore, essentially threw them under the bus. Yes, without a doubt. I mean, Johnson has royally shall we just say, um, why do we say this politely? Stuffed. Stuffed, stuffed, here we go, that's a good word. Stuffed, he's royally stuffed the DUP. Completely, he's reneged in all of his promises. And this was all very clear after the, the 2019 election. I mean, he did not lead the DUP anymore. Why does he need to care about them? But also I think Johnson was entirely unaware of the political realities as well, that Britain is a, is a small power lobbying within a much larger entity, which is the EU. And, of course, America is supporting the Good Friday Agreement as well, who Britain would like to be a potential future trade partner. So there's lots of big players here who are going to say, actually, Britain, you've chosen to leave, rather, well, UK, <laughs> we'll say the UK, but again, you know, wherever Northern Ireland voted to remain. Well, Scots would say England, England and Wales chose to leave. Well, this is all part of the interesting way in which we describe the makeup of these islands. It's differing tremendously and changing by the week, by the month. So, yes, they were naive. However, still it would be foolish to, to say that the, the DUP are entirely exonerated from this because when they entered that confidence and supply agreement with Theresa May, they were not particularly emphatic, I would say far from emphatic, on preventing a hard border on the island of Ireland and indeed some well-respected... Some of them want it, presumably. There are some people in the DUP who would... Yeah like to go back absolutely to i mean there are some well-respected commentators who have have talked about how the dup hoped many members hoped that a hard border on ireland would materialize as in the aftermath of brexit and that would help to kind of restore a bit of confidence that northern ireland was still separated from the south 
And Theresa May, you know, did alter her policies in order to try and suit the DUP. Now, one was, you might say, well, look, it would never have gotten through Westminster anyway, um, even if the DUP had been behind her because of such an overwhelming defeat on her on her various bills that she put forward. But still, I mean, if the DUP had come out and actually agreed to any of her measures, which would have prevented this current scenario, this would not have led to the collapse of the May administration as, as happened. And we'd probably not have led to that 2019 general election. And looking, looking ahead... And I know that one of the things we've been talking about is how it's impossible to predict anything. But I mean, I suppose there are three broad things that could happen with the the border in Ireland. One is it stays as is, it's open, there's free movement across it. Or it could go back to the old hard border with British soldiers manning it. Or it could disappear altogether and you have a united Ireland. Yeah, and there might well be a couple of other scenarios too. I mean, I grew up on the border and I can absolutely (laughs) tell you that one wouldn't see a border apart from signs changing, but not necessarily at the border. You might have to go some distance before you see a a sign in kilometres or miles. I mean, the border was both a physical construction at some points when during the Troubles you had um, before Ireland and, and the UK joined the EU, you had customs checks of particular roads. However, there were other roads left entirely unmanned. Uh, I mean, when I went to school, I crossed the border three times and you wouldn't have known that you'd, you'd crossed it. I mean, this is the way the border is. People can see it on a map, but whenever, whenever you're there, it's much more difficult to see. And that's been a really good thing for the politics of the island. Well, certainly in the last 50 years, but I mean, since partition, one would say in, in 1920. So that's been really important to kind of facilitating relations in, in very difficult moments. So what are our hypothetical scenarios? I mean, one, this can all kind of drift on as is. Northern Ireland stays where it is. The Republic of Ireland stays as its current 26 county entity. And the fudging systems of the protocol are, are resolved enough that people might still be a bit frustrated, but continue. You might also f- be another possibility whereby, as you say, the government here refuses to implement the checks that it was supposed to do so as a result of the Brexit agreement. And gradually the EU whips up different tariffs that, that Britain's going to have to pay or the UK will have to pay, um, which will incrementally maybe change and force the government to come in. We're back to scenario one. Maybe at some stage the UK government doesn't change any of that and eventually the EU tells the UK to put up a border. Now, is the UK going to put up a border? My guess is not. It's not going to want British soldiers again in Northern Ireland, not least because I think there would be tremendous unpopularity within the country and within particular voting enclaves for that to happen. Because, you know, the troubles were tremendously costly in lives, but also finances for the UK government. So I don't think they'd want to do that. So then what happens with this international border? And one of the scenarios could be that the EU tells Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, to put up a border. And it will be very difficult for Ireland to say no. Of course, you have all of these historical reasons why it should say no. But also it is a you know small player, even if it's very supported within the nations that are today the EU. But what might that border look like? I imagine it could be a variety of different things from customs checks in particular places, uh, which might not necessarily need to be on the line itself, but maybe new areas are created for those checks to happen. Technologies that particularly target um, companies, corporates. But again, this reminds me of the David Davis. New technologies can solve this problem. Or it just has to take a very hard line stance with a tremendous amount of marketing that says, actually, if anybody brings across goods from the north to the south, the south to the north, even as Tesco sandwich, for example, you'll be fined X amount and there will be checks at various points. So I don't know is the answer, but there are lots of hypothetical scenarios, which again reminds us of the importance of contingency and predicting what might happen in the future, because none of these might happen. We don't know. So yeah, we will have to wait and see, won't we? You said earlier that Belfast was in flames in June 1921 when George V went over to open the new parliament, that Northern Ireland was created in blood and turmoil. So who was behind that violence? So, I mean, this is part of the sectarian violence that Townsend talks about in his book, but it's also significantly different. Yeah, they are, they're attacks from, from Protestants and Catholics, but they are particularly attacks from the new state forces through the Ulster Special Constabulary, 
who um, morph into the, the Royal Ulster Constabulary that are the police force of Northern Ireland. And they are the very problematic police force that, of course, part of the reason why the civil rights movement gained such international credibility in the 60s is because of the images of the police bludgeoning protesters that are replayed in international media all across the world. This is one of the main reasons why the UK government steps in and demands the Ulster Unionist Party to enact some reforms, some compromises, and therefore diminish its majority. And the RUC, of course, are eventually disbanded. They're effectively more than a 90% Protestant police force. And after devolution and the kind of the changes that are made in the, the Good Friday Agreement, you now have a new police force, the police service in Northern Ireland, who are it's much more representative of the demography that it serves. And I think it has a 50-50 principle, guiding principle in its in this sort of recruitment strategy. So this is an entirely different setup to a, a region, a jurisdictional apparatus than it had existed in 1920. But in, in terms of violence, I mean clearly there's there's popular everyday violence, and we've seen it more recently with the attacks from, from loyalists on, on Lanark Way. And it would be a, a real mistake to put this all down to the protocol, because violence has been part and parcel of, and I, I do mean this, of community life for quite a long time in those areas of, of Belfast. It's partly recreational. And that sounds, I know that sounds nuts, but I, I really am I'm quite serious about this. It's partly recreational. And there have often been instances of rioting happening in, in various estates within Belfast for a very long time. Of course, it is partly to do with the protocol as well, because the protocol has been at the forefront of the news in Northern Ireland really since it was enacted. And this is what commentators on, on news outlets have been talking about every day, particular ones on Radio Ulster, I'm thinking about at the moment, who are talking about this and the kind of challenges it to, poses to Northern Ireland's Britishness. So all of this is sort of red flags to loyalists. And loyalists are, are quite different from unionists. They're effectively a group who define themselves in class terms as working class. And indeed, many of them are. They're the descendants of the people who would have worked in, in industry, who really have been sort of the, the fallout since the new state was created back in, in 1920. They have not had new jobs to replace the manual labour that they were good at. You don't see them represented very well in tertiary education. Even, you know, if you get a handful of, of GCSEs, I mean, that is a, a good achievement. There are real educational problems. There's a lot of poverty within these estates. These are long endemic problems. They're not the fault of the Good Friday Agreement. They've existed beforehand, but they are part of loyalist communities. And violence is seen as a way to kind of protect, and again, it's this dreadful, dreadful word identity. And identity is conflated with allegiance. So allegiances to a British version of Northern Ireland are very important. To, to loyalists who are rioting because of the protocol and because it's recreational and because, I mean, in a way, they are being egged on. They're being very much egged on by unionist politicians. Even if you look at some of the rhetoric recently by Poots, he talks about he can't predict whether there'll be violence this, this summer. I mean, they're very, they know the words that they're saying. They're goading in the statements that they make because they know exactly what will happen. Sorry, and there was the, um, I can't remember the name, but the, um, the Umbrella Group the spokesperson for the for the UVF and other um, loyalist parliamentary groups who said they were thinking of no longer respecting the ceasefire. Yeah. So, I mean, there is, as I've forgotten the name as well, but there is some sort of group that represents different loyalist paramilitaries because remember, there weren't not just the UVF. There's so many. There's the UVF, the LVF, which is the Loyalist Volunteer Force, the UFF, the Ulster Freedom Fighters, the Red Hand Commandos. I mean, the list goes on. There are lots of different ones. And, you know, to bunch them all together would be a mistake because they are clearly different for a reason, right? They've got their own kind of competing allegiances amongst each other. But again, you know, we, we often batch them together as, as loyalists, like, like they're all the same, but they're not. They're quite different. And yeah, the British uh, Secretary of State, Brandon Lewis, actually recently met that group to hear their concerns and worries. And you can have different views of this. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's probably quite good to know what the worries are from people who pose a really great risk to the stability of institutions. On the other hand, I really can't imagine a British Secretary of State meeting the kind of splinter groups from the IRA that exist today or anything from the Republican side. So, I mean, that also is a part of this, too. And that tells a message to those other 
people within Northern Ireland who would consider themselves from a nationalist background, that actually it's still an uneven way in which the UK government deals with its citizens in Northern Ireland. And because there's now strong evidence, incontrovertible evidence, that throughout the Troubles, the British state and the loyalist paramilitaries were working together. Yeah, BBC Spotlight did a wonderful series of documentaries, which I think you could still get on iPlayer, about this. And that's really clear cut. The state was involved in many of the murders that came to be part and parcel of the Troubles. And there are some really grim statistics. I mean, Republican paramilitaries uh, are responsible, of course, for killing mainly security personnel in one form or the other. So policemen, army men, army men, soldiers, that's the word. You know, they're the main kind of demographic targets of, of Republicans. But when you look at loyalist deaths, it's incredibly grim. I mean, the vast bulk of people are civilians. And again, there's that conflation between civilians and paramilitaries with um, and sort of enemies within loyalist discourse and feeling. And it's just part of the grim reality of the 3,000 odd deaths that there were in, in the Northern Irish Troubles. But you say in your piece there's not, you don't foresee a return to that. I mean, that violence is not going to come back. So the Troubles can never come back. The Troubles were a distinct product of their time. You needed the structural discrimination and decades of it to be a background. You need a police force that was predominantly one side and not the other. You needed uh, generations of sort of missed opportunities, one side or the other, and a one-party state to have brought about the context, to have brought about the civil rights movement, which itself borrowed from the international movement within America, not least in the 60s, in its discourse and its language and its activities, the marches, for example, um, where it was attacked. And then the kind of arrival of the British soldiers in Northern Ireland in 1969, on particular moments like Bloody Sunday, of course, in January 1972, all of these helped to change a conflict that was about civil unrest into much one that was much more protracted and lengthy. And then policies that were brought in, such as internment, which effectively meant picking up mainly young men, and I think it's actually 100% of men who were picked up for an, uh, under the internment policy were indeed Catholic. Of course, most of whom had zero affiliation with anything to do with Republican politics. But a lot of this helps to kind of channel energies into that, which is why the movement became successful. These were all distinct products of their time, of their context, of decisions that were made. Now, does this mean that violence can't return to Northern Ireland? No, of course it doesn't. Whatever happens, it'll be very different from the Troubles, because the Troubles is done. It can't be replicated. But I imagine the scenario and the landscape is entirely different. I mean, there is now, uh, there is no discrimination, right, between um, housing allocation, local government authority. One man, one vote is implemented, right, right across the board. So that's there. You have a police force that serves a demography that it represents and now has much more support than it would have ever done before. That's also radically different. The IRA decommissioned in 2005. Yes, there was a small splinter group from that. We've no idea how many. And they will absolutely use the same acronym because, of course, part of the continuities in republicanism and in loyalism is using these acronyms that have a connection to the past. Even though, remember, the personnel are very different. Otherwise, you have some very, very, very old IRA guys and UVF men. So the personnel is different, even if the names are the same. And there was a splinter group. Of course, there was. I don't know who they are. There's probably more than one. Now, will they take up guns? I think they've always wanted to take up guns at some point because they were never happy with Sinn Féin entering the new institutions in Northern Ireland and still that legacy of 1916, the idea of an Irish Republic, the whole Ireland free from British rule, still has not been achieved. So for them, their central premise in which the, the provisional, provisional IRA, who were the main IRA in the Troubles, emerged out of, was this achievement of a republic. That Patrick Pierce's idea of republic, um, which he read out in the proclamation of the Irish Republic in the Easter Rising of 1916. So they, of course, may take up guns, and I don't know where they'll get them from, but I wouldn't be surprised that you'll there'll be some, you know, you'll hear reports in the news of there'll be a pipe bomb here, there'll be an attack there or whatever. Loyalists clearly still have guns, and so there are still guns in Northern Ireland, without a doubt. Now, whether they can be as easily asked or you know, gotten from Libya, for example, which is where a lot of, I think, the guns and arsenal and Semtex came from, I don't think those relationships exist very much anymore, again, because Gaddafi, well, of course, the, 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 Well, Gaddafi's, yeah. yeah. Right. So it's an entirely different scenario. 
Doesn't mean violence can't happen, but the whole ground is shifted. So I can't imagine Republicans or nationalists ever getting the same level of support that was there in the Troubles for an armed campaign, nor can I ever imagine an armed campaign being as as big as it was. But also now you have Sinn Féin looking like they'll be the first, uh, the major party within Northern Irish politics. And they're currently the largest party in the South as well. So for the first time, Sinn Féin, who supports the United Ireland, will be the largest party North and South. And it looks like the British government has done more to create a United Ireland in the last handful of years than Republicans have done in generations. So really, if they had any sense, they'd probably sit back and see what happens. So who knows what will happen? Loyalists are the real worry at the moment. And of course, you can't predict where violence will go, because once somebody is killed from the other side and a sort of momentum might be generated, backlash, retaliation, etc. Who knows? You can't predict where it will go, but I doubt it would be anything like the troubles. It can't be the troubles because they've happened and they're gone. But where it will go, if it goes anywhere and if it starts, your guess is as good as mine. Neve Gallagher, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. You can read Neve Gallagher's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Ian Penman on The Beatles, Tessa Hadley on The First Mrs Meredith, and Tarek Ali on the life of Muhammad. And you can also listen to me talking to Tarek on the last episode of this podcast.